This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Despite Pope Francis's attempt to discourage it, all across the Roman Catholic world, the Latin Mass is hanging on. It's even the subject of a story in the New York Times, Old Latin Mass Finds New American Audience Despite Pope's Disapproval. So does the New York Times story get that this is a major difference between Pope Francis and his predecessors? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. This New York Times story, Old Latin Mass Finds New American Audience Despite Pope's Disapproval. Is this a story about worship or politics, or is it actually about doctrine? Well, that's what readers have to try to figure out. And I think if they walk through the story carefully, this is just a hunch. Because of the the richness of the details that are in this story about the people who come to these services and kind of some elements of who they are, I think that some of the people involved in this story are convinced that there is more to this story than politics. Yet over and over and over, readers hear this familiar refrain that we've talked about many times here, which is that religion stories are viewed as important to the degree that they are considered political. And there's that mantra again. Politics is what's real to the overwhelming majority of elite American journalist. Politics is something that affects the real world, why religion is not. So thus, how could a story about new types of people, a new coalition of people going to worship, how could that be important unless it wasn't primarily political? Now, I want to stress that I think there are political themes in this story. The issue is why. Why are certain types of people who believe certain types of things more likely to want to attend services in the Latin Mass? But listeners need to understand there are a lot of growing Catholic churches that are not using the Latin Mass. In the last two to three years, yes, the pandemic years, my own Eastern Orthodox Church here in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, has gained something like 50 new members. And that's in a church with about 100 normal attendants. We were just a mission, you know, a decade or two ago. And people come to our Eastern Orthodox services telling us that they're there for some of the same reasons that you will hear articulated in this story. So is politics involved? Yes. And the reason politics is involved is that there are doctrines of the Roman Catholic faith that in this era have political ramifications. Maybe I should say implications there. So anyway, it's a complex story. I think the story has more good in it than bad, but it is extremely frustrating 
to see this assumption that runs through the story that people who want to see a traditional form of Catholic worship performed with great deal of reverence, that that desire is automatically, as it's put in one point in the story, part of a rising right-wing strain within American Christianity as a whole. Well, if it's, if it's right-wing, what does that tell us about the age that we live in? Does the story appear to understand that this may be one of the biggest differences between Francis and his predecessors? The question of the role of this Mass in the life of the vast Roman Catholic world. Yeah, and it's crucial that Francis and his supporters continue to say that they see opposition to the Latin Mass as part of a a rebellion against Vatican II. And this leads us to an important point. Pope Benedict XVI, retired, still alive, Pope Benedict XVI has stressed his adherence to the doctrines and changes of Vatican II, but Vatican II didn't forbid the Latin Mass. And he wanted to know why some people were opposed to the Latin Mass, and how could he encourage it in a way that was healthy? Now, the way I would word it, and the way I've heard Catholics word it, the question is not whether many of the people who support the Latin Mass, and I would stress other traditional forms of Catholic worship. There are people using the Novus Ordo, Vatican II Mass, who that Mass is celebrated with tremendous dignity, they use Gregorian chant, they use smells and bells, and it's done with a high degree of reverence. And in some cases, the Novus Ordo Mass might even be done in Latin. That's a different service than the Tridentine Latin Mass. This is something that this story doesn't mention, but frequently we now have bishops striking down not just the Tridentine Mass, they're limiting use of the Novus Ordo Latin Mass, where you have to have the bishop's permission to celebrate that Mass. In Chicago, we've had controversies about the saying of some traditional prayers that date back into more, not ancient or medieval, but just older forms of Catholic reverence and liturgical life. So old is bad is a trend that's bigger than the Tridentine Mass. And we don't find that out in this story, but it's it's a part of this. And quite frankly, I, I think we see the same thing in some other churches ar around America. I think you would, at one point, have a lot of conflict in the Episcopal Church between the old prayer book and the new prayer book. And yes, there were implied doctrinal changes, but the main thing was that the new service implied support for kind of the modern regime of the Episcopal Church and some of the doctrinal changes that have come with that. I've covered stories dating back into the 1980s involving battles over Lutheran hymnals, where you saw exactly the same dynamic at play. Old is bad, new is good, and if you believe the new is good, then we have some new doctrines for you, as well as a new hymnal. I could go on and on about this. It's a huge story, and it's bigger than the Tridentine Latin Mass.
I'm intrigued by this line about six, seven paragraphs in the lines talking about the appeal and the revival of the Latin mass. And it says, it appeals to an overlapping mix of aesthetic traditionalists, young families, there's an angle, new converts, there's a bigger angle, and then the typical critics of Francis. Right. Now, what doctrine is hinted at by the story's consistent emphasis on the fact that this place is drawing large new families, including families with more than five children. What is the implication there? Well, you have people who are living the teachings of the Church regarding contraception and family life. Yeah. It implies something Francis has spoken of, that he'd like to see more large families, but that is certainly not a major theme among the modernists in today's Catholic Church. And so the willingness to kind of accept the gift of life, which is a way you would hear conservative Catholics describe this, their willingness to accept life as given by God tends to lead to large families. But here's a theme I want us to think about. That's in the catechism. That's in the catechism of the Catholic Church. And several other doctrinal issues related to abortion, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, the meaning of the word marriage, several other things that are in this story, they're all in the Catholic Catechism. Yet the story refers to this as conservative Catholic doctrine. It never says official Catholic doctrine. It never says ink-on-paper catechism Catholic doctrine. And I've taken some shots through the years for using a phrase in my column and at Get Religion where I refer to these Catholics not as right-wing, I refer to them as pro-catechism Catholics. These are people who would like to try to live their lives according to the teachings in the catechism. Now, the catechism has a lot of things to say about many, many issues that are not right-wing. And the Catholic doctrine that life is sacred from conception till natural death has implications for abortion and euthanasia, but popes, both conservative and progressive, if we can call Francis a progressive, have cited the reverence for life as a large part of their teachings, and I would say validly so, on things linked to the environment, immigration, the death penalty, handgun violence, and a host of other things that, trust me, are not considered right-wing. So supporting the catechism and the teachings of the catechism is not a knee-jerk right-wing reaction, but you would not know that from most of the details cited in this story. Here's another line that, I, that just kind of stuck out to me from the New York Times story. It says, leaning into the demands of intense religious experience, many supporters of the Latin Mass seek a return not just to old rituals, but to old social values and gender roles. At this point, I'm, I'm a very cynical person. I feel like the reporters are trying really hard to turn this into a 
political or at least a kind of a social angle? Well, I think the hint there is that progressive spirit of Vatican II Catholics would be much more likely to want to see ordained women either as permanent deacons or even in the priesthood. And they would say that if you support traditional Catholic teachings about marriage and the family, you automatically support a strictly patriarchal version of the faith. Now, is ancient Christianity something that can accurately be called a patriarchal religion? Frankly, yes, and certainly as it's been practiced through the years. But old social values, that's just terribly vague language that could mean all sorts of things. Right below what you just read, we get another crucial paragraph such as this. And this to me is kind of the heart of the story and should have been emphasized. Although Catholics as a whole are a politically diverse cohort in the United States, frequent mass attendees tend to be more conservative. 63% of Catholics who attend mass at least monthly supported Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential election compared with 53% of less frequent attendees, according to the Pew Research Center. Informal surveys have found that Latin Mass attendees not only attend Mass more often, but hold almost universally conservative views on topics like abortion and gay marriage. Universally conservative views is code language for the actual catechism doctrines of the Catholic Church. Now, once again, just as we've discussed the whole idea of the monolithic evangelical vote, there are a lot of Catholics who may have voted for Donald Trump that wish they had a different option. There are a lot of things hiding within those numbers. But we've known now for at least three decades that I've been covering this story that people who go to church more often are much more likely to support traditional Christian teachings on issues related to the sexual revolution. What a shock. And that leads them, when they go to ballot boxes, that leaves them in the position that they're seeking the candidate who does the least to attack some of the things they value most in life, which is their religious views related to marriage, family, their children, and yes, sexuality, abortion, right to life, etc. They're called one-issue voters, as if abortion was the only issue. These days, a lot of other things go along with that, and the issues keep growing and growing, not the least of which is open warfare about the rising number of people reporting gender dysphoria or a condition that some people, and not just conservatives, have begun referring to as rapid-onset gender dysphoria, which seems to have a whole set of laws. Now, Pope Francis is on record as calling the orthodox doctrines of gender related to trans, etc. He's on record as calling that demonic, or words exactly to that effect, if you know how to speak New Testament. Well, is supporting Pope Francis on those issues, is that universally conservative? Well, once again, we're back to all the different ways that this story kind of declines to say the people who support conservative doctrine are supporting the actual 
teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and they're clashing with some people who either don't publicly support those teachings or they openly oppose them. I mean, we're dealing with a rosary-carrying president, Joe Biden, who has actually performed same-sex marriage unions in his capacity at that time as vice president and has stated at that time that he believes the Catholic Church doctrines on that subject are wrong and will need to change. Well, it's possible for someone to be infuriated by that kind of statement and not be a political right-winger. They might just be a traditional pro-catechism Catholic, to use my phrase. So, Terry, I'm going to read this. You read the paragraph before, and I'm going to read it with a significant omission, or at least I think the author would have considered it a significant omission. Although Catholics as a whole are politically diverse cohort in the United States, frequent mass attendees tend to be more conservative. Informal surveys have found that Latin mass attendees not only attend mass more often, but hold almost universally conservative views on topics like abortion and gay marriage. Now, what I left out there was the 63% versus 53% of Catholics that voted for Donald Trump. Did Trump have to be in this paragraph? By the way, both 53% and 63% are still majorities. Yes, the Catholic vote is at the center of all political life in America in national elections. You had to mention the Pew Gap. What you didn't have to say is that it was limited to the Trump era. I'm trying to remember which election it was. I believe it was one of the George W. Bush victories. But while you were watching this on TV, one of the commentators, Tim Russert, was talking about the election and how tight it was going to be. And Tim Russert, that was the same election where he held up the Florida, Florida, Florida. So that was one of the George Bush elections. And he said, this is going to be another one of those elections that comes down to Catholics in Ohio who go to church every week against those who go to church only once a month. He was talking about the Pew Gap, exactly what we're talking about here. He was talking about it all the way back then. Russert was onto something, and Russert was a practicing Catholic. Why make it about Trump? This is something that has been a reality in American politics now for several decades. Well, Trump is the giant troll in the living room at this point. But you could make exactly the same case about some other political figures. In fact, I would argue that depending on what happens in the Republican Party, that someone like Ron DeSantis could probably capture an even broader coalition of Catholic voters, throwing in Latinos, some African Americans, and others, as we saw how easily he won the state of Florida. You could make a case that DeSantis would not only capture this coalition, but might even enlarge it compared to Trump, because there are people who simply reject the moral personal baggage that comes with Donald Trump. So to take your point, you did not have to mention Donald Trump. You did have to say that this reality of how often people go to Mass being one sign of their beliefs on Catholic doctrines 
and especially Catholic doctrines that are kind of under siege right now in public life, that the Pew Gap factor, which has been around since the 80s and 90s, the Pew Gap must be acknowledged as a part of the current story. So yes, you had to mention politics. No, you didn't have to mention Donald Trump. A couple of other things here, Terry. How did the story connect this kind of rift on the Latin mass and the pandemic lockdowns? Well, I have no doubt whatsoever that Latin mass churches saw an uptick when other parishes around these major cities closed, and the Latin mass church is meeting and your church is closed. Where are you going to go to mass if you truly believe in the need to take the sacrament once a week? Now, what we're not told here is whether or not the Latin mass churches took limitations and safety measures on COVID seriously. The assumption in this story is that they did not. If you followed this issue in my own column, but also at Get Religion, we focused a lot on churches that obeyed, did everything they could to obey the guidelines for returning to worship, while a lot of other churches stayed totally closed, and how those churches saw a large influx in people. Once again, I can only speak for my own parish, but also... A year ago, I was a part of the delegation to a meeting of the Diocese of the South in the Orthodox Church of America. Everybody reported an uptick in membership and attendance during the pandemic. Now, was this because the churches ignored the pandemic? No. In many cases, it's because they did everything they could to worship while obeying the guidelines during the pandemic. Our own Archbishop, I thought, did a wonderful job of finding a way to find out what the local regulations were and then helping churches meet socially distance, limited attendance in my own parish for many months. We ended up going to church usually about every other week because we couldn't get everyone into our small sanctuary and be safe. And yes, we were wearing masks. And then eventually our archbishop, this is very unusual for the Orthodox, and I know there were Catholic churches that did the same thing, he allowed us to have the divine liturgy outdoors because it was safer to be outdoors and it was easier to space out from each other outdoors. At that point, our entire congregation and a lot of newcomers came back. Now, is that the same thing as being anti-pandemic regulations? Is that the same thing as not wanting to take COVID seriously? This story kind of hints that these traditional Latin mass churches were all opposed to safety during pandemic. And I don't think the story proves that at all. I was uh, curious about another section here where they are interviewing advocates of the Latin mass. And this one, uh, Mr. Peters, it says, like Mr. Peters, almost all Latin mass devotees used a version of the word reverent, unprompted, contrasting the tone of the Latin Mass with the often, if rare, examples in modern parishes featuring non-traditional elements like puppets and balloons, a casual treatment of the Eucharist, or music and dance they consider to be disrespectful. 
when you were talking about some of these elements of this story are very good, this one is very good. That's a detail that I think helps us understand what's going on here on the individual level. Yeah, they didn't need the word rare because the story in no way proves that they're rare. It doesn't prove that a kind of simplified, frankly, shallow presentation of the Novus Ordo Mass isn't very common. Every single Catholic I know who has converted to Eastern Orthodoxy have done so, and the first thing they say is that the worship here is reverent, it's beautiful, and I just can't find that at a Catholic church in my area. Now, are they demanding the Latin Mass? No. In many cases, they're saying they don't want to go to church and have the Mass over in 45 to 50 minutes with a couple of sing-along hymns written during the Guitar Mass era, and then you're out the door. They're looking for something more beautiful than that. Sometimes they also use the word more masculine than that, something that is has stronger language and a richer use of liturgical symbols. Yes, they want smells and bells. They want processions. They want to get outside their church and march around the building and act out some of these traditional processions that are a part of Catholic liturgy and have been for centuries. They want to see, smell, touch, and taste their faith. Well, can you do that within a Novus Ordo Mass? Of course you can, and many churches do. What I think is also interesting and could have been mentioned, just one or two sentences, right at the point you're talking about, they could have mentioned some of the battles that are not about the Latin Mass, but like the battles in Chicago, that are about any traditional symbols and forms, hymns, chant, etc., being used in worship. The old versus new battle is a lot bigger than the Tridentine Mass. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.